Now, typically what I would do at this point in the service is ask you to turn to a specific passage. And I know, um, thank you, Alan, by the way, for preaching or preaching, reading (laughs) from Isaiah 42. I appreciate that. What I typically do is turn to a specific passage, but it's a little different this morning, and I'll explain why in a few moments. And I'm grateful that you've decided to join us, so thank you. We are now in our fourth week of our series about God's unfolding story. If you've joined us for the previous three weeks, I'm sure you've caught on to the fact that we're really not trying to do a survey or a summary of all 66 books of Scripture. We're also not emphasizing the genres of Scripture, law, narrative, history, poetry, prophets. It's it's not that we're emphasizing those genres. Instead, we're looking for the signposts throughout the Word of God that point directly to Jesus. How does the Bible portray Christ? as the epicenter, the bullseye in God's eternal plan for saving mankind? Is it really possible on every divinely inspired page to see, as as you can see on the front of our, our note booklet here, one story about one God saving one people through one Savior? I feel like we've been trying to answer that over the last month, these last four weeks. But of course, we want to continue answering that question together. So if you're using the sermon series notebook like this, and there's some available out there in the Welcome Center if you didn't get one, or in the front foyer here if you didn't get one, I hope you'll grab one of these and take notes along with us. Open it up to page 18. You'll see a summary of today's message along with a blank page for taking notes. Because the series is more topical than expository, I'll be stepping away from that normal habit that I mentioned of parking in in one specific passage and walking verse by verse through it entirely. Instead, I'll refer to a lot of passages. Some of them will be written on the screens. Some of them will not be. So let me encourage you to use that notebook to write down all the references that we discuss so that later on you can come back to them and study them out more fully. I'll be mentioning a lot of them. It really has been for all of us who have had this opportunity during this series, it's been an impossible task for us to do complete justice to the set of books that we're assigned to, and all of us have kind of talked about that. But again, it's not that we're trying to do justice to the books. We have one primary purpose. How do we see Jesus in his word? How does this particular portion of God's word point to one story about one God saving one people through one Savior? Well, this morning, we'll zero in on the major and minor prophets. Who are they? 16 books written by 15 different authors. There's three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. You may think that I'm leaving one out. Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. All three of these were well-known Israelites who wrote at length about their encounters with Jehovah God, the sovereign covenant God of Israel. The 12 minor prophets, although not as well-known, certainly aren't minor in importance at all. It's just that they were relatively obscure authors who wrote only very briefly about God's coming power and judgment upon the nations. I'm sure you recognize their names. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. 12 men in all, whose combined number of written chapters, 67, is only one more than the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah alone. You may not have realized that all 12 of those books of the Minor Prophets were discovered on a single scroll many years later. Pardon me. So it's almost like they're more chapters than they are books. That single scroll was discovered many years later by unnamed prophets. We actually don't know who they were. 
And those prophets didn't really know anything about the, the books that they had discovered except for one simple fact. The prophecies that were being proclaimed in those texts were all being fulfilled. As a whole, both the major and the minor prophets simultaneously point both to events in the near future as well as the distant future. Now, of course, they describe God delivering judgment to a specific people or a nation or a a city, but they also point to patterns in God's sovereignty. They're saying this is who God is and this is how he deals with his world. So today, we read the prophets recognizing specific predictions that have already occurred, But we also acknowledge that it's the same God who we serve who will deal with his world the same way both today and in the future as well. So, what is there that we have to learn from these seemingly mysterious, largely cryptic books of the Bible? Books that are so often written in Hebrew poetry. In fact, flip through Isaiah through Malachi. You'll see that a lot of times even the framing of the sentences on the page, the framing of the the lines, represents the fact that they're poetic. What do we learn about these cryptic books of the Bible? There's plenty, I think. So let's start by asking what I think is probably the most basic question of all. Who were these prophets? What kind of men did God use, and what was he using them to say, and what is it that they were doing? Now, let me admit that we tend to think wrongly of prophets as fortune tellers, right? So prophecy has to do with things that are still to come. They truly were foretelling the future. That's what prophets tended to do. But in ancient Hebrew culture, a prophet was someone who received a unique message from God to pass along by God's authority. That's why Elijah and Elisha were prophets, not because they wrote books of the Bible. They didn't or because they predicted a great number of historical events coming up in the future. They didn't do that either. They simply proclaimed God's message, often warning people about the judgment that accompanies disobedience. They were ordained by God, commissioned by God, to share his specific message with the people. God spoke directly to them. You see, this is what prophets do. Incidentally, I think that's why you can make a strong case for the the fact that I believe Moses really was a prophet. You can make this case for Moses being a prophet, even though he did not see visions of the future. I think it's also why Daniel was technically not a prophet, even though he did have visions of the future. Now, how do I work that out? Well, understand that Moses spoke directly to God. We know of the incident, right? The incident in particular. He's walking through the wilderness, and he sees a burning... Mm -hmm. And the bush speaks to him, and Moses asks who's speaking, and God, Jehovah God, the God of Israel, says, my name is, I am. I'm self-sufficient, the one who needs no one, nothing. And then God commissions Moses to a specific work, talks directly to him, and he becomes God's mouthpiece for a specific purpose. That's what a prophet does. Now, do we see that in the example of the life of Daniel? No. No. He had the authoritative visions that foretold the future, but God didn't speak directly to him, arguably, in order to present those visions to the people. He shared them because he knew that God was giving him something to be passed along. But even in Jewish society, the book of Daniel was not included among the prophets. And so if you're wondering why it is that I don't include him in our list, that's the reason. 
The book of Daniel was actually included among the writings of the ancient Jewish Bible rather than the prophets. And I think that's the reason for it. So in simple terms, these were men who acted as God's mouthpiece. Several of the prophetic books begin with phrases like the word of the Lord that came to so-and-so. You've heard that phrasing before. The vision from God to so-and-so. The oracle of so-and-so. You see, that's the Bible's way of pointing out that these men spoke with the full weight of God's authority. It was as though God revealed something directly to them and then commissioned them to speak on his behalf. In other words, they were proclaimers of the gospel. Now let that sink in. They were proclaimers of the gospel. Who were they? First, they were proclaimers of the gospel. Does your mind object to that? Maybe a little bit. Why is that? Is it because perhaps we have a little bit of a a slightly misguided understanding of the gospel? Because we think the gospel really didn't happen or occur until Jesus died on the cross, right? Is that when the gospel began? Now, there's no questioning. There's no doubt. Before you would think that that, um, I'm a heretic, and now we have commissioned... (laughs) Our church, uh, one of the pastors being a heretic. That's not the case. That's not the case. But the gospel has always existed, friends, before Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Because according to Paul, as you and I know, the gospel is described in Romans chapter 1 in verse 16 in great detail. It is the power of God for salvation. Now, there's no doubting the fact that Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that is the center. That is the absolute middle of the bullseye part of the gospel. And there's no questioning the fact that without that, you don't have the gospel. But I would submit to you that none of those things are possible without the power of God. So really, the way that Paul defines it as the power of God is perhaps the most accurate way for us to depict the gospel. Not just any power, but the power of God for salvation. Not just the salvation that we get as a redeemed group of people who've been redeemed from sin and shame, Jesus being victorious over both sin and death simultaneously. It's not just that. Of course, that is something with eternal impact that all of us are grateful for. But the power of God was on full display before the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and the prophets pointed to it. Without exception, all of the prophets are careful to describe in great detail The power and the might of God among all the peoples, not just his own peoples. In Ezekiel, for example, we read of the destruction of wicked nations. How? By God's mere words. And a final exclamation of, I am the Lord, I have spoken. Here's a reference for you to write down and come back to it later. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 12. Read through that. Notice the finality of that statement. The power of God for the salvation of his people in a different sense then. It's accentuated by God's statement, I am the Lord, I have spoken. It's final. There is no appeal. The tiny book of Amos, nine chapters long, uses the expression, thus says the Lord, or thus declares the Lord literally dozens of times. Make a note to yourself to just browse through Amos. Or you can do it while I'm speaking. I won't judge you. Flip through the book of Amos, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and so on. You're going to see dozens and dozens of times that those two statements, thus says the Lord or declares the Lord or some form of that, depending on your translation, are used. 
Why? Well, that's a way for Amos to emphasize that God has the final say in every matter. And the simple truth is, friends, there's countless examples through all the major and minor prophets. Open up to practically any page in any of these prophetic books, and you're likely to find an extended description of God's power to save. It's greater than whirlwinds, lightning, fire, earthquake, rumbling thunder, the mighty roar of the ocean. Do you kind of get the idea? Whatever it was to the authors of that day, whatever it was that might depict great power, it's not very much unlike what we experienced last night, or should I say early this morning. How many of you, how many of you lost some sleep over the incredible thunder and lightning display that we had last night? Anybody? Yeah. My wife knows that when I awaken from sleep, it takes me a few moments to get my bearings, not only where I am and what I'm doing, but who I am. And I typically have fears in my, fear in my eyes. Is that right, hon? Typically there's fear in my eyes. So imagine being jolted awake by a sound that, to me, seemed like a freight train driving through my living room. That's what the ancients would have compared the power of God to. That was, all they, that, that was the most powerful, mightiest thing that they could use. And we would use similar examples today. The point is that the prophets always acknowledge that true salvation from the perils of this life, whatever they are, whether spiritual, physical, military, whatever they might be, true salvation from life's perils always comes from God. Ultimately, God is the source. He's more powerful than people, than nations, than empires, than dark satanic powers. Hopelessness or depression, if you, like me, have struggled in the depths that are found in anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, you name it, whatever man's struggle, God is the one who can ultimately deliver us. You see, friends, that is the essence of the gospel. The prophets delivered that message emphatically time and time and time again. Jehovah God, he will save. He's powerful. And it's that power, it's that might that backs up his promises. It's that might that backs up his covenant that he will keep his word. Thus says the Lord. So, who were the prophets? They were proclaimers of the gospel, but not only so. Secondly, they were prefigures of Jesus. They really were. They declared God's rule and reign over his kingdom and then called people to repentance, just like Jesus did. More often than not, their message was ignored, just like Jesus was. The Hebrew nation spent centuries in and out of exile as captives simply because they turned their back on God's messengers, the prophets. Does that sound like exactly the experience that Jesus had in human form? 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, another verse to you to come, for you to come back to later. Let me encourage you to do that. That's 2 Kings 17, verses 13 and 14. They point out that the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, but they would not listen. It's what happened to Jesus years later when, as John puts it in his gospel, he came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. It's John chapter 1, verse 11, by the way. The prophets prefigured exactly what Jesus would endure in his bodily form. Jesus, in his parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 44, another great passage, Matthew 21, 
33 to 44, to come back to for comparison's sake. Jesus uses this extended allegory of a vineyard to point out how a master sent his servants and then eventually his own son to tend to his property. Eventually, all of them, the servants, were beaten and killed by the wicked tenants who had taken over that vineyard. Just as Israel had beaten and killed God's prophets and then ultimately God's own son. The point of the parable that Jesus told is God had been showing his people for centuries that no matter who it was that delivered the message and no matter how they delivered it, those people were always rejected, even by God's own people. When the people didn't like a prophet's message, they killed the messenger. We understand that terminology. God's son was put to death by the very people he came to rescue. When Paul looked into the eyes of the Jewish leaders proclaiming Jesus, he pointed his finger of accusation at the Jewish people. It wasn't the Romans who killed or murdered Jesus. It was the Jewish people, Jesus' own people. Incidentally, the prophets predicted that that was going to happen, that Jesus would be rejected by his own people and that he would be killed eventually. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. So please at least understand two basic answers to our question. Who were the prophets? They were proclaimers of the gospel. But then secondly, they were prefigures of Jesus. Thirdly, though, they were parallels to the Holy Spirit. Let me point out what I mean. They were parallels to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know your theology, you realize that even though he's only very rarely referenced throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is alive and well throughout the Law and Prophets. In fact, Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, proclaimed, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. That's Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Again, I tried to warn you, friends, a lot of references that are taken from, most of them from, the books of prophecy. So jot that down if you'd like to study that one later. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the difference between the interaction of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New is that the Holy Spirit wasn't living inside each individual believer in the Old Testament, right? We understand that. It wasn't until after Jesus' ascension back into heaven that the Spirit began to indwell his followers. Jesus promised that that would happen, not only that he would be with you, followers of Jesus, but he will be in you. So that's the distinction. But the Holy Spirit has always existed just like Jesus has always existed. His preexistence is taught throughout Scripture. The same is true for Father and Son and Spirit. We understand that. But in the Old Testament, the work of the Spirit was reinforced by the prophets because they were the heralds of God's message. In the same way that the Holy Spirit, we understand, convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, you can find that in John chapter 16, verse 8. This was Jesus now explaining the role of the Holy Spirit when he would come to live inside of believers. He said that the, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is exactly what the prophets tended to do in parallel with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They showed people what was wrong, that's sin. They showed people what was right. That's the righteousness part. But then they also pointed out what was next. That's the judgment part. Now, we typically think of judgment as being something that's exclusively negative, right? But what are the two pronouncements in a court of law? The judge typically or the jury typically pronounces guilty or 
Innocent, right? We understand this. So don't think of judgment as always only negative. Because the simple truth is that when the Holy Spirit convicts of judgment, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, not exclusively one or the other. And certainly the prophets, in accompanying or paralleling the Holy Spirit, proclaim the same thing. And that's why I, I, I mention it this way. The, the Holy Spirit and then their parallels, the prophets in the Old Testament, tended to show the people what's wrong, what's right, and what's next. Look for some of those themes. Look for some of those ideas as you read through both the major and minor prophets. Because the prophets help God's people in their avoiding of sin, in their embracing of repentance, and in their pursuit of the will of God. All of which, of course, are functions of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that existed in the Old Testament, that still exists today, and that was paralleled by the prophets. So, three very simple answers from a very simple man. Who are the prophets? Well, they're proclaimers of the gospel. They're prefigures of Jesus. They point to Jesus. And they actually represent what Jesus would eventually experience in his bodily form. But they're also parallels to the Holy Spirit. Hopefully that gives you a sense of, of who it is that you're reading when you open up to any of those prophetic books. I do think it's that idea of the paralleling of the Holy Spirit that brings up another important question, though. Let me ask it to you right now. Why is it that the prophets are so heavily steeped in poetry? Have you noticed that? I challenged you a few moments ago to just flip through the pages. You'll notice that the Psalms are almost exclusively written in poetic format, right? So a line, and then return, and next line, and so on and so forth. Hebrew poetry. Why is so much over 50%, between arguably 50 and 75%, and some translations do a better job of depicting it in the formatting than others, but why is it that so much of the prophetic books are steeped in poetry? Why? Because we don't value poetry today like they did back then. I was talking with my class just before we began here about what we use poetry to do. Poetry is entertaining, right? Nursery rhymes remind us of poetry. Or we use it as a memory tool, a mnemonic tool, right? I before E except after C, thank you, <laughs> all of you grammarians out there. Or when sounded like A as in neighbor. Okay, some of you, anybody who's been, anybody younger than me is probably looking at me like, what? We understand how memorization is often a memory tool. Did you realize that the alphabet is based on poetry? Memorization and poetry are that's part of our, our memory tool. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. You may not have re realized that before. You just kind of memorized it, right? But poetry helps us as a memorization tool, and certainly that was the case. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see a lot of examples of that. But it's not just that. You see, in Hebrew poetry, there's extended metaphor, and it may, it, it may cause you to ask yourself, do we really need all that extended metaphor? Some of the stories are so immersed in symbolism that they're hard to understand. The poetic images are often confusing, sometimes even frightening. Why do we need all that? Especially in the inspired word of Scripture. Couldn't the same goals have been accomplished through simple narrative accounts? What was God doing? I mentioned that in my Sunday seminar, we're reading through the prophetic books of Nahum and Habakkuk, actually. I don't think I mentioned that. We've had several conversations about the vivid language that's typical of the minor prophets. 
You see, it's imagery that's meant to stir the reader's imagination and to invoke a very specific response because imagery has a way of doing that. Picturesque speech has a way of prompting our mind and stimulating our mind to work in ways that it doesn't normally do. Let me show you what I mean. Here's an example. There's a difference between me telling you that I walked down the hall on my way to the auditorium this morning and telling you instead that I skulked through the darkened corridor, eluding the security cameras cameras with my back pressed noiselessly against the wall. Each step, a ninja-level master clasp of espionage and stealth. Now, that's not true, but (laughs) is there a mental image that's created in the back of your mind? Absolutely. I believe, incidentally, that's what made radio so successful back in the day. Because you had to think about the words that were being relayed over the airwaves. You didn't have anything to see, and so your mind filled in the blanks. You see, one of those descriptions simply communicated a fact, but the other provoked a mental image. Think about that. You see, that's what the prophets do. They provoke a mental image image. Let me prove it to you. Let's take a look briefly at a passage that you don't have to turn to. We'll put it on the screen here for you. Nahum chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. Here's a terrific example. We studied through this in our our class a couple of weeks ago. Nahum asks the rhetorical question, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold. In the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, notice what's happening in your mind. In these few brief verses, we see three recurring themes that you'll repeatedly encounter in the poetry of the prophetic books. There's a very clear warning against sin. You'll see it there in that passage. Notice God's anger against it. It's it's described as hot, hot as fire, powerful enough to break rocks into pieces. But then there's also a call to repentance. He's good. He'll provide a stronghold and a refuge to those who run to him. Does that sound like a God who is powerful to save? There's also a description of his judgment against the wicked. He'll make their end complete and pursue them into darkness. Whoa. You see, all of those are word pictures. They stimulate the mind to produce an overflow of mental images. And the prophetic books are filled with them. So why is poetry a crucial part of God's word, especially in these prophetic books? Here's the answer, I believe. It's to stretch the imagination to its limits, with breathtaking portrayals of warning against sin, calling to repentance, and pronouncing of judgment. Now, if you'd like a terrific overview of all three of those basic themes, I highly recommend that you watch How to Read the Prophets at BibleProject.com. That's BibleProject, all one word, dot com. It's five minutes well spent. I think there's other parts of the Bible that touch on these critical themes, but nowhere else in all of Scripture will you find the kind of picturesque repetition and poetic quality seen in the prophets. Warning against sin, calling, pleading to repentance and pronouncing of judgment. It really isn't an exaggeration to call them literary masterpieces. That's exactly what they are. They reflect the creative beauty of the master creator. 
I really believe, friends, that rather than running away from the poetry of Scripture, rather than just briefly browsing through it, yeah, 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 God's Word is a fire, yeah, yeah, God's powerful, rather than approaching the Word of God that way, the next time you delve into the prophets, really force yourself to close your eyes, think through the mental images that are being stimulated through those verses, and really do what the Word of God asks us to do again and again and again and again. Meditate. I really believe God uses the process of meditation to communicate his truth to us. Thankfully, we need, we need no more revelation of his truth. We have it all in the word of God. But what we sometimes omit is meditating on its truth and really capturing God's intent in his word. So let me challenge you to do that. Let's spend our last few moments of the message together looking at one final question that I want to unfold and answer for you, though. How do the prophets reveal Jesus? We talked about our series now pointing to one story about one God saving one people through one Savior. How do the major and minor prophets do that? The simple truth is that there's all sorts of ways, and the more you look for Christ in the prophets, the more you begin to see him. It's really not that different from the new car phenomenon. Have you noticed this? You don't recall seeing a particular model on the roads until you buy one, and then suddenly it seems to be everywhere, right? There's a scientific term for that. It's called cognitive bias. <laughs> I wish I could have just thought of that, but I had to look it up. I didn't know that. Cognitive bias or frequency illusion. So if you want to sound really smart, you can use those terms. The principle is the same. The frequency has not changed, but your mind identified a pattern once your attention was drawn to it. My wife and I were talking about this very principle just yesterday. We just recently um, purchased a, a car that's red. We haven't had a red vehicle for quite some time. And we didn't notice how many red vehicles there are on the road till now we have one. Our minds established the pattern. Now we see them everywhere. They've always been there, right? Nothing has changed. Well, let me submit to you that in your reading of the Word of God, particularly through the prophets, the major and minors, Jesus has always been there. He always has. It's just that our attention was not drawn to him. The pattern was not something that we walked into our reading of Scripture noticing. Now, there are times when the prophets draw our attention to very clear, very straightforward declarations of this coming Messiah, this one who was to come to save. Messiah specifically means anointed one. There was one who was coming in one of those three positions that were typically anointed, prophet or priest or king. Of course, Jesus came as all three. Isaiah 7 verse 14 points out that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's one that kind of slaps you in the face, right? That's hard to miss. Isaiah 9 6 is similar. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We typically read that passage right around Christmas time, right? Those are passages that very clearly and very obviously point to Jesus, and it's really hard to miss those. There's plenty of similar occurrences throughout the prophetic books, but there's times when the mention of Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, as the prophesied Son of Man, Son of God, Holy One, all the various terms that are used throughout the Old Testament, there are times when the mention of Jesus is a bit more subtle. So, 
Let's take this morning's scripture reading, for example. Did you catch the messianic prophecy? That is, a looking forward to a time when a Messiah, one who was anointed as prophet, priest, or king, would come to save. Did you catch that in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, as Alan was reading through it? So let's listen to it once more. We'll put it on the screen. Take a look. All right. Now, give yourself a little bit of, I don't want to call it um, the two terms that I just forgot. I have to look them up. <laughs> Cognitive bias. <laughs> Frequency illusion. Can you tell that these are not terms that I use a lot? I don't want to call it that, but in your mind, ask yourself, is God using his word to point to his son? Ask yourself that question as we read. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit. What do you notice about the word spirit? Yeah. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. <laughs> you see him? If you didn't notice the references to Christ before, then I bet you probably saw them now. He's called a servant. Jesus took upon him the form of a ser servant, didn't he? Philippians 2, verse 7. God's spirit is upon him. The spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove at his Baptism, yeah. That's in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, along with other places in the Gospels. He will bring justice. Don't we know from Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. His demeanor is gentle. What did Jesus use to describe himself in Matthew 11, verse 29? He said, I am meek and lowly in heart. So on and so on and so forth. Who else but our Lord fits the full description that you see depicted in those verses? Don't just pick and choose one or two. Take the entire whole and ask yourself, who could that possibly be referring to? The answer is clear. There is no one but Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to read Jesus into the text of every prophetic passage. But the simple truth is that we really don't need to read him into anything at all. Because he's already there. We simply need to open our eyes and we need to look for him as we read. So perhaps the question is not so much how do the prophets reveal Jesus, but how don't they? He's on practically every page, prefigured in the lives of the prophets themselves, foretold directly and indirectly again and again. All 16 prophetic books reveal the Savior by title or by name or by his character. So don't just see the calamity that abounds in the prophets. See the coming king that they foretell. Approach your next reading of these awe-inspiring works of Hebrew poetry with a mindset that's Christ-centered rather than crisis-centered. And watch God transform the way you read his word. Because then, friends, you'll see Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, The lamb, the roaring lion, be still and behold him. 
Jesus, beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, our God, the risen Savior. Oh, be still and behold him.